Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 258 of Forgotten Classics, where we try to figure out how Leonard and Juana are going to get out of the problems they have found themselves in The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard. But first, the podcast highlight. Or in this instance, two books by people who are podcasters. I can't remember if I've mentioned these before, but for different reasons, I wound up getting them from the library and I enjoyed them so much. I thought you might like to know the case of two podcasters who successfully have entered the written world. The first is The Nutrition Diva's Secrets for a Healthy Diet, What to Eat, What to Avoid, and What to Stop Worrying About by Monica Reinagle. I am a big fan of The Nutrition Diva. She is really great at giving common sense advice, doing things like looking at, oh, you know, reports from scientists in the news where you hear one little sound bite and you figure you need to rehaul your entire diet and she will on her next podcast episode say, well, let's look at it. Let's look at the study size. Let's look at what it really means to your diet. Let's talk about these other things. So she's got great common sense. And I actually had a friend who went to see that movie Fed Up and came back from it just stunned at the fact that you need to read labels on products. I was stunned that she didn't already do that. She said, well, I just trusted what they say on the front. Now, I had already been thinking, oh, fed up. Do we need another movie like this? Well, I guess we did, because she and her five friends are mothers of young families who've never even thought about looking at what's in their food. So I got this book from the library because, well, for one thing, when it came out, our library didn't have it. I gave a copy to my sister, and I was very excited for her to get to read it. But I'd never gotten to look through it, and I wanted to see if this would be good to recommend to my friend as a good common sense way of reforming how you think about food and eating. And it is actually just wonderful, just like her podcast. She first takes you through the grocery store, talks about what to buy, the pros and cons of various products and packaged foods, all that kind of thing. And then she takes you through the day, you know, how do we eat? What's a common sense way to have breakfast, to achieve various things, to think about when you're on the road, snacks. Do you want a snack? Do you not? And she doesn't get pedantic. She doesn't lay down, oh, and here's how you have to eat, which is what a lot of food books try to do or diet sort books do. She says, here are your pros and cons. You may choose this for yourself because you think about food this way or your body acts this way. Fine. In that case, here's the way you do it. Here's how you think about snacks. Here are the things you choose. Here are the pros and cons. So you have all the information you need to choose for yourself. And one example that I found was very interesting, just to give you an idea, is she has a box called, Is a Vegetarian Diet Healthier? And she says, you know, a lot of studies show vegetarians are likely to be less overweight, have less uh, cancer, heart disease, and all this stuff. But It's looking at the way yesterday's vegetarians eat, not today's vegetarians. And she says, the percentage of true vegetarians hasn't changed that much over the last 30 years, but the percentage of people who sometimes will eat vegetarian food has skyrocketed and commerce has risen to meet that challenge. So whereas before you had to have fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, legumes, all these kind of things. And you had to a lot of times get them at a health food store or make them yourself. Now you can fill your cart with, and I'm quoting, vegan frozen pizzas, burritos and waffles, fake bacon, sausage and hot dogs, cookies, cakes and donuts, chips, dips, crackers and fake cheese, and vegan breakfast cereals that make Cap'n Crunch look virtuous without venturing beyond a mainstream grocery store. And so she's saying, you still have to pay attention to what's going on. The fact that now you can get this stuff from a major manufacturer just means read the labels. Are they putting in extra salt and sugar and all that kind of thing? So then she has a few bullet points of guidelines and things like what vitamins you might have to look for, that sort of thing. So that's one example. It's a really great book. I recommend it. And I'll put a link in the show notes. 
Now, the other book I just got is fairly new. It's from 2013. It's called Pretty Good Number One, An American Family Eats Tokyo. And it's by Matthew Amster Burton, who is one of the two co-hosts of Spilled Milk, which is a food podcast I absolutely love. It's the one that has stood the test of time. I love Matthew and Molly and the way they have a chemistry, they're funny, and the way they talk and think about food. Now, they will have episodes that just focus on one item, you know, whether it's tomatoes or soy sauce or whatever. And they're only about, oh, 15, maybe 20 minutes long. The book was brought up when Molly at one point said, <laughs> said, oh, of course you're talking about Japan. You spent a month there living and eating. And that made me remember this book is out. It's a lot like Matthew's own style, which is there are a lot of jokes thrown in. It's almost like a stream of consciousness book, but not exactly, because he actually self-published it. It was a Kickstarter program, but he did go to the trouble, and I appreciate it, of getting an editor, you know, putting in place all the things that somebody from a regular publisher would have access to. So it streamlined his book some. It probably, I don't know, organized it a lot. And what he does is talk about when he and his family went, as I said, for a month to Tokyo and just kind of had a great vacation there. Ate, explored, sounded wonderful. And I've never been that interested in going to Japan, but by the time I was done with this, I was wondering, could I go if I didn't learn kanji without work? Because he made it seem so approachable and fun. And you get things in there like, he'll talk about Japanese breakfast, but then he'll stop after he's talking about the kind of things they eat and say, well, what's Tokyo Denny's like? Tokyo Denny's looks like an American Denny's circa 1982, complete with a cigarette machine and plenty of smokers. And then he'll say, well, but the menu is written in Japanese and it specializes in yoshoku, which is the Japanese take on Western foods. So they have things like hambagu, Salisbury steak and brown sauce, curry rice, potato croquettes, and spaghetti naparatan, which is, you know, spaghetti. So then he talks about that for a while. And what you get is this great look at the culture in a way that is just like going with a kid to Disneyland. You know, there had to be frustrating times, but he doesn't talk about that. Every traveler has that kind of thing. Although he does say it was like a honeymoon period. So maybe since they knew they were leaving in a month, maybe not. One of my favorite chapters was when he talks about all the things they have to do for kids in Tokyo, including starting with go out and play in the streets and I don't want to see you for about four hours and the kids are completely safe. It shows them a level of independence that we've lost here. He talks about things like Kidzania, which is an international chain of theme parks where children work at realistic fake occupations like veterinarians, firefighters, pizza cooks. And they, for instance, to be able to drive, which they have little cars there, they had to get a driver's license there. And then they have the gas station where the kids are gassing up the cars. So, and as he says, um, they received their training, which had nothing to do with fire safety or pump operations and everything to do with bowing in unison after dispensing imaginary gasoline. And he'll talk about things also like the Ghibli Museum, which I, for one, that's when I got really interested in going to Tokyo. We love Studio Ghibli's animated movies in our household. But if you don't care about that, then uh, that's fine, too. <laughs> he'll talk, of course, about some of the things that are famous that we've maybe seen on TV, like restaurants with conveyor belts with the food on them or the Japanese baths. But then he'll also talk about things like English speakers in Japan. He says, we'll spend a hilarious amount of time saying English words recast in Japanese phonemes. And he says, for a small ice cream, sumoru kon, chokoritu. Which, if you did that here, people would go, oh, have you been watching old Charlie Chan movies? But there... Those are the words that they have adapted to their own speaking. So anyway, it's a fascinating look into Japanese culture, and it's a great book, and I will put a link on the blog. Now, again, away in a foreign land, 
possibly never to leave, possibly to have a very short lifespan. We have Leonard and Juana and Soa and Otter and their small band of settlement men who are left. What are they going to do? What's going to happen? They're kind of stuck in this palace and are they going to be able to get out? And will they get any rubies? That's the reason they came. And they've all evidently been given to the snake, which is not a snake, but a giant crocodile, possibly 300 years old and therefore very good at killing people. I don't like the sound of this at all, which is the point. Let's get back on that roller coaster. Are you strapped in? Okay, hands in the air. Let's go. And I'll meet you on the other side. The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 26 The Last of the Settlement Men On that day of the vanishing of the three settlement men, Nam paid his weekly visit to do honor to the gods, and Leonard, who by this time could make himself understood in the tongue of the People of the Mist, attacked him as to the whereabouts of their lost servants. When he had finished, the priest answered with a cruel smile that he knew nothing of the matter. Doubtless, he said, the gods had information as to the fate of their own servants. It was not for him to seek those whom the gods had chosen to put away. Then turning the subject, he went on to ask when it might please the mother to intercede with the snake, that he might cause the sun to shine and the corn to spring, for the people murmured, fearing a famine in the land. Of course, Juana was able to give no satisfactory answer to the priest's questions, and after this the quarters of the settlement men were changed, and for a few days the survivors slept in safety. On the third night, however, two more of them were taken in the same mysterious manner, and one of those who remained swore that hearing something stir, he woke and saw the floor open, and a vision of great arms dragging his sleeping companions through the hole in it, which closed again instantly. Leonard hurried to the spot and made a thorough examination of the stone blocks of the pavement, but could find no crack in them. And yet, if the man had dreamed... How was the mystery to be explained? After this, with the exception of Otter, who, sure of the fate that awaited them, took little heed of how or when it might fall, none of the party could even sleep because of their terror of the unseen foe who struck in silence and in darkness, dragging the victim to some unknown awful end. Leonard and Francisco took it in turns to watch each other's slumbers, laying themselves to rest outside the curtain of Juana's room, as for the survivors of the settlement men, their state can scarcely be described. They followed Leonard about, upbraiding him bitterly for leading them into this evil land and cursing the hour when first they had seen his face. It would have been better, they said, that he should have left them to their fate in the slave camp than have brought them here to die thus. The yellow devil was at least a man, but these people were sorcerers and lost spirits in human shape. Nor did the horror stop here, for at last the headman, Peter, a man whom they all liked and respected, went mad with fear, and ran to and fro in the palace yard while the guards and women watched him with curious eyes as he shrieked out curses upon Juana and Leonard. This shocking scene continued for some hours, for his companions would not interfere with him, vowing that he was possessed by a spirit till at length he put a period to it by suddenly committing suicide. In vain did Leonard caution the survivors to keep their heads and watch at night. They flew to the beer which was supplied to them in plenty, and drank until they were insensible. And still, one by one they vanished mysteriously, till at length all were gone. Never might Leonard forget his feelings when one day at dawn, in the fifth week of their incarceration, he hurried as usual to the chamber where the last two of the unfortunate men were accustomed to sleep, and found them not. 
There were their blankets, there was the place where they had been, and on it, laid carefully in the form of a St. Andrew's cross by some unknown hand, shone two huge sacrificial knives, such as the priests wore at their girdles. Sick and faint with fear, he staggered back to the throne room. "'Oh, what is it now?' said Juana, who early as it was had risen already, looking at him with terrified eyes and trembling lips. "'Only this!' he answered hoarsely. "'The last two have been taken, and here was what was left in place of them.' And he cast down the knives onto the pavement. Then at last Juana gave way. "'Oh, Leonard, Leonard!' she said, weeping bitterly. They were my father's servants, whom I have known since I was a child, and I have brought them to this cruel end. Can you not think of any way of getting out of this place? If not, I shall die of fear. I can sleep no more. I feel that I am watched at night, though I cannot tell by whom. Last night I thought that I heard someone moving near the curtain where you and Francisco lie, though so was where's it was fancy. It is impossible, said Leonard. Francisco was on guard. Ah, here he comes. As he spoke, Francisco entered the room with consternation written on his face. Altram, he gasped. Someone must have been in the throne chamber where we slept last night. All the rifles have gone. Ours and those of the settlement men also. Great heavens, said Leonard. But you were watching. I suppose that I might have dozed off for a few moments, answered the priest. It is awful, awful. They are gone, and we are weaponless. Oh, can we not escape? moaned Juana. There is no hope of it, answered Leonard gloomily. We are friendless here except for Olfan, and he has little real power, for the priests have tampered with the captains and the soldiers who fear them. How can we get out of this city? And if we got out, what would become of us, unarmed and alone? All that we can do is keep hard and hope for the best. Certainly they are right who declare that no good comes of seeking after treasure, though I believe that we shall live to win it yet, he added. What, deliverer? said a satirical voice behind him. Do you still desire the red stones? whose heart's blood shall soon redden a certain stone yonder. Truly the greed of the white man is great. Leonard looked around. It was Soa who spoke, Soa who had been listening to their talk, and she was glaring at him through an expression of intense hate in her sullen eyes. A thought came into his mind. Was it not possible that this woman had something to do with their misfortunes? How came it about that the others were taken while she was left? Who gave you leave, Soa? he said, looking her fixedly in the face, to hearken to our words and thrust yourself into our talk. You have been glad enough of my counsels hitherto, white man, she answered furiously. Who told you the tale of this people, and who led you to their land? Was it I or another? You, I regret to say, said Leonard coolly. Yes, white man, I led you here that you might steal the treasure of my people like a thief. I did it because the shepherdess, my mistress, forced me to the deed. And in those days her will was my law. For her and you I came here to my death, and what has been my reward? I am put away from her. She has no kind word for me now. You are about her always. You hold her in counsel. But to me, her mind is as a shut door that I can no longer open. Aye, you have poisoned her against me, you and that black swine whom they call a god. Moreover, because she has learned to love you, white Thief, wanderer without a curl as you are, at your bidding she has also learned to hate me. Beware, white man, I am of this people, and you know their temper, it is not gentle. When they hate, they find a means to be revenged. And she ceased, gasping with rage. 
Indeed, at that moment, Soa would have made no bad model for a statue of one of the furies of Greek mythology. Then Juana attempted to interfere, but Leonard waved her back. So, he said, as I thought, you are at the bottom of all this business. Perhaps you will not mind telling us what has become of your friends, the settlement men, or if you feel a delicacy on that point, how it is that you have escaped while they have vanished. I know nothing of the settlement men, answered the fury, except that they have been taken and sacrificed, as was their meed. And as yet I have lifted no hand and said no word against you, though a breath from me would have swept you all to doom. Hitherto I have been spared for the same reason that you and Baldpate yonder have been spared, because we are the body servants of the false god, and are reserved to perish with them when the lie is discovered, or perhaps to live a while, set in cages in the marketplace, to be mocked by the passers-by, and to serve as a warning to any whose monkey hearts should dare to plot sacrilege against the divinity of Akka and Jal. Now, shepherdess, take your choice. As you know well, I have loved you from a babe, and I love you yet, though you have scorned me for this man's sake. Take your choice. I say, cling to me, and trust me, giving the deliverer to the priests, and I will save you. Cling to him, and I will bring shame and death upon you all, for my love shall turn to hate." At this juncture, Leonard quietly drew his revolver, though at the time nobody noticed it except Francisco. Indeed, by now, Juana was almost as angry as Soa herself. "'How dare you speak to me thus?' she said, stamping her foot. "'You whom from a child I have thought good and have trusted. What do you say, that I must give him who saved me from death over to death, in order that I may buy back your love and protect myself?' You evil woman, I tell you that first I will die as I would have died yonder in the slave camp. And she ceased, for her indignation was too great to allow her to say more. So be it, shepherdess, said Soa solemnly. I hear you. It was to be expected that you would prefer him whom you love to her who loves you. Yet, shepherdess, was it not I, after all, who saved you yonder in the slave camp? Doubtless I dream, but it seems to me that when those men who are dead deserted you, running this way and that in their fear, and shepherdess, it is for this that I am glad they are dead, and lifted no hand to save them, I followed you alone. It seems to me that having followed you far till I could walk no more for hunger and weariness, I used my wit and bribed a certain white man, of the sort who would sell their sisters and blaspheme their mothers for a reward to attempt your rescue. I bribed him with a gem of great price. Had there been ten of them, that gem would have bought them all. And with the gem I told him the secret of the treasure which is here. He took the bribe. And being brave and desperate, he drew you out of the clutches of the yellow devil, though in that matter also I had some part, and then you loved him. Ha! Huh. Could I have foreseen it, shepherdess, I had left you to die in the slave camp, for then you had died loving me, who now hate me, and cast me off for the sake of this white thief." Leonard could bear it no longer, and in the interests of their common safety he came to a desperate resolve. With an exclamation he lifted the pistol and covered Soa. Both Francisco and Juana saw the act and sprang to him, the latter exclaiming, "'Oh, what are you going to do?' "'I propose to kill this woman before she kills us, that is all,' he answered coldly. "'No, no,' cried Juana. She has been faithful to me for many years. I cannot see her shot. Let the butcher do his work, mocked Soa. It shall avail him little. Doubtless he is angry because I have spoken the truth about him. And she folded her arms upon her breast, awaiting the bullet. What is to be done? 
said Leonard desperately. If I do not shoot her, she will certainly betray us. Then let her betray, said Francisco. It is written that you shall do no murder. If you fear to shoot a woman, send for your black dog, white man, mocked Soa. He would have killed my father, and doubtless this task also will be to his liking. I can't do it. Get a rope and tie her up, Francisco, said Leonard. We must watch her day and night. It will be a pleasant addition to our occupations. After all, it is only one more risk, which is no great matter among so many. I fancy the game is about played out anyhow. Francisco went for the rope and presently returned, accompanied by Otter. A month of furious dissipation had left its mark even on the dwarf's iron frame. His bright black eyes were bloodshot and unsteady. His hand shook, and he did not walk altogether straight. You have been drinking again, you sot, said Leonard. Go back to your drink. We are in sorrow here and want no drunkards in our company. Now then, Francisco, give me that rope. Yes, boss, I have been drinking answered the dwarf humbly. It is well to drink before one dies, since we may not drink afterward. And I think that the hour of death is at hand. O shepherdess of the heavens, they said down yonder at the settlement you were a great rainmaker. Now if you can make the rain to fall, can you not make the sun to shine? Wind and water are all very well, but we have too much of them here. Hearken, said Leonard, while you reveled, the last of Mavum's men vanished, and these are left in their place. And he pointed to the knives. Is it so, boss? answered Otter with a hiccup. Well, they were a poor lot, and we shall not miss them. And yet, I wish I were a man again, and had my hands on the throat of that wizard Nam. Wow, but I would squeeze it. It is your throat that will be squeezed soon, Otter said Leonard. Look here, God or no God, get you sober, or I will beat you. I am sober, boss. I am indeed. Last night I was drunk. Today nothing is left but a pain here. And he tapped his great head. Why are you tying up that old cow so a boss? Because she threatens to use her horns, Otter. She says that she will betray us all. Indeed, boss. Well, it is in my mind that she has betrayed us already. Why do you not kill her and have done? Because the shepherdess here will have none of it, answered Leonard. Also, I do not like the task. I will kill her if you wish, boss, said Otter with another hiccup. She is wicked. Let her die. I have told you that the shepherdess will have none of it. Listen. We must watch this woman. We will guard her today, and you must take your turn tonight. It will keep you from your drink. Yes, boss, I will watch, though it would be better to kill her at once, for thus we should be spared trouble. Then they bound Soa securely and set her in a corner of the throne chamber, and all that day Leonard and Francisco mounted guard over her alternately. She made no resistance and said nothing. Indeed, it seemed as if a certain lassitude had followed her outbreak of rage, for she leaned her head back and slept, or made pretense to sleep. The day passed uneventfully. Olfan visited them as usual and told them that the excitement grew in the city. Indeed, the unprecedented prolongation of the cold weather was driving the people into a state of superstitious fury that must soon express itself in violence of one form or another and the priests were doing everything in their power to foment the trouble. No immediate danger was to be apprehended, however. After sundown, Leonard and Francisco went out into the courtyard to inspect the weather, according to their custom. There was no sign of a change. The wind blew as bitterly as ever from the mountains, the sky was ashen, and the stars seemed far off and cold. Will it never break? said Leonard with a sigh, and re-entered the palace, followed by Francisco. Then, having solemnly cautioned Otter to keep a strict guard over Soa, they wrapped themselves up in their blankets in order to get some rest, which both of them needed sadly. 
Juana had retired already, laying herself to sleep immediately on the other side of the curtain, for she feared to be alone. Indeed, they could see the tips of her fingers appearing beneath the bottom of the curtain. Very soon they were asleep, for even terror must yield at last to the necessities of rest, and a dense silence reigned over the palace, broken only by the tramp of the sentries without. Once Leonard opened his eyes, hearing something move, and instantly stretched out his hand to assure himself of Juana's safety. She was there, for in her sleep her fingers closed instinctively upon his own. Then he turned round and saw what had disturbed him. In the doorway of the chamber stood the bride of the snake, Saga, a lighted torch in one hand and a gourd in the other, and very picturesque that handsome young woman looked, with her noble figure illumined by the glare of the torchlight. "'What is the matter?' said Leonard. "'It is all right, Bas,' answered Otter. "'The old woman here is safe as a stone statue yonder, and quite as quiet. Saga brings me some water, that is all. I bade her do so because of the fire that rages inside me and the pain in my head. Fear not, Bas.' I do not drink beer when I am on guard. Beer or water, I wish you would keep your wife at a distance, answered Leonard. Come, tell her to be off. Then he looked at his watch, the hands of which he could just distinguish by the distant glare of the torch, and went to sleep again. This took place at ten minutes past eleven. When he awoke again, dawn was breaking, and Otter was calling to him in a loud, hoarse voice. Bas, he said. Come here, boss. Leonard jumped up and ran to him to find the dwarf on his feet and staring vacantly at the wall against which Soa had been sitting. She was gone, but there on the floor lay the ropes with which she had been tied. Leonard sprang at Otter and seized him by the shoulders. Wretched man, he cried. You have been sleeping and now she has escaped and we are lost. Yes, boss, I have been sleeping. Kill me if you wish, for I deserve it. And yet, Bas, never was I more wide awake in my life until I drank that water. I am not one to sleep on guard, Bas. Otter, said Leonard, that wife of yours has drugged you. It may be so, Bas. At least the woman has gone, and say, whither has she gone? To Nam her father, answered Leonard. Chapter 27 Father and Daughter While Leonard and Otter spoke thus in their amazement, had they but known it, a still more interesting conversation was being carried on some three hundred yards away. Its scene was a secret chamber hollowed in the thickness of the temple wall, and the dramatis personae consisted of Nam, the high priest, Soa, Juana's servant, and Saga, wife of the snake. Nam was an early riser, perhaps because his conscience would not allow him to sleep, or perhaps on this occasion he had business of importance to attend to. At any rate, on the morning in question, long before the break of dawn, he was seated in his little room alone, musing, and indeed his thoughts gave him much food for reflection. As has been said, he was a very aged man, and whatever may have been his faults, at least he was earnestly desirous of carrying on the worship of the gods according to the strict letter of the customs which had descended to him from his forefathers, and which he himself had followed all his life. In truth, from long consideration of them, their attributes, and the traditions concerning them, Nam had come to believe in the actual existence of these gods— although the belief was a qualified one and somewhat half-hearted. Or, to put it less strongly, he had never allowed his mind to entertain active doubt of the spiritual beings whose earthly worship was so powerful a factor in his own material rule and prosperity and in that of his class. In its issues, this half-faith of his had been sufficiently real to induce him to accept Otter and Juana when they arrived mysteriously in the land. It had been prophesied that they should arrive thus. That was a fact. And their outward appearance exactly fitted every detail of the prophecy. That was another fact. And these two facts together seemed to point to a conclusion so irresistible that, 
Shrewd and experienced as he was, Nam was unable to set it down to mere coincidence. Therefore, in the first rush of his religious enthusiasm, he had accorded a hearty welcome to the incarnations of the divinities, whom for some eighty years he had worshipped as powers spiritual. But though pious zeal had much to do with this action, as Olfan informed Juana, it was not devoid of worldly motives. He desired the glory of being the discoverer of the gods, he desired also the consolidation of the rule which his cruelties had shaken that must result from their advent. All this was well enough, but he had never even dreamed that the first step of these newborn divinities would be to discard the ancient ceremonial, without which his office would become a sinecure and his power a myth, and even to declare an act of hostility against himself. Were they, or were they not, gods? This was the question that exercised his mind. If there was truth in prophecies, they should be gods. On the other hand, he could discover nothing particularly divine about their persons, characters, or attributes. That is to say, nothing sufficiently divine to deceive Nam himself, whatever impression they produced upon the vulgar. Thus, Juana might be no more than a very beautiful woman, white in color, and Otter, only what he knew him to be, through his spies, a somewhat dissolute dwarf. That they had no great power was also evident, seeing that he, Nam, without incurring the heavenly vengeance, had been able to abstract, and afterwards to sacrifice comfortably the greater number of their servants." Another thing which pleaded against their celestial origin was that so far, instead of peace and prosperity blessing the land as it should have done immediately on their arrival, the present season was proving itself the worst on record, and the country was face to face with the prospect of famine in the ensuing winter. And yet, if they were not gods, who were they? Would any human beings in their senses venture among such people as the children of the mist merely to play off a huge practical joke of which the finale was likely to be so serious to themselves? The idea was preposterous since they had nothing to gain by so doing, for Nam, it may be observed, was ignorant of the value of rubies, which to him were only emblems employed in their symbolical ceremonies. Think as he would, he could come to no definite conclusion. One thing was clear, however, that it was now very much to his interest to demonstrate their non-celestial origin, though to do so would be to stultify himself and to prove that his judgment was not infallible. Otherwise, did the gods succeed in establishing their power, he and his authority seemed likely to come to a sudden end in the jaws of that monster which his order had fostered for so many generations. Thus reflected Nam in perplexity of soul, wishing to himself the while that he had retired from his office before he was called upon to face questions so difficult and so dangerous. "'I must be patient,' he muttered to himself at last. Time will show the truth, or, if the weather does not change, the people will settle the matter for me. As it chanced, he had not long to wait, for just then there was a knock upon his door. Enter, he said, arranging his goatskin robe about his broad shoulders. A priest came in bearing a torch, for there was no window to the chamber, and after him two women. Who is this? said Nam, pointing to the second of the women. "'This is she who is servant to Akka, father,' answered the priest. "'How does she come here?' said Nam again. "'I gave no orders that she should be taken.' "'She comes of her own free will, father, having somewhat to say to you.' "'Fool, how can she speak to me when she does not know our tongue? "'But of her presently, take her aside and watch her. "'Now, Saga,' Your report. First, what of the weather? It is grey and pitiless, father. The mist is dense and no sun can be seen. I thought it because of the cold. And he drew his robe closer around him. A few more days of this. And he stopped, then went on. Tell me of Jal, your lord. Jal is as Jal was. 
merry and somewhat drunken. He speaks our language very ill, yet when he was last in liquor, he sang a song which told of deeds that he and he whom they named the Deliverer had wrought together down the south, rescuing the goddess Akka from someone who had taken her captive. At least so I understood that song. Perhaps you understood it wrong, answered Nam. Say, niece, do you still worship this god? I worship the god Jal, but the man-dweller in the waters I hate, she said fiercely. Why, how is this? But two days gone you told me that you loved him, and that there was no such god as this man, and no such man as this god. That was so, father. But since then he has thrust me aside, saying that I weary him, and courts a handmaid of mine own, and therefore... I demand the life of that handmaiden. Nam smiled grimly. Perchance you demand the life of the god also? Yes, she replied without hesitation. I would see him dead if it can be brought about. Again Nam smiled. Truly, niece, your temper is that to my sister, your grandmother, who brought three men to sacrifice because she grew jealous of them. Well, well, these are strange times, and you may live to see your desire satisfied by the death of the god. Now, what of that woman? How comes she to be with you? She was bound by the order of Aga, father, and Jal was set to watch her. But I drugged Jal, and loosing her bonds I led her down the secret way, for she desires to speak to you. How can that be, niece? Can I then understand her language? Nay, father, but she understands ours. Had she been bred in the land, she could not speak it better. Nam looked astonished, and going to the door, he called to the priest without to lead in the stranger. You have words to say to me, he said. Yes, Lord, but not before these. That which I have to say is secret. Nam hesitated. Have no fear, Lord, said Soa, reading his thoughts. See, I am unarmed. Then he commanded the others to go, and when the door had closed behind them, he looked at her inquiringly. Tell me, Lord, who am I? asked Soa, throwing the wrapping from her head and turning her face to the glare of the torchlight. How can I know who you are, wanderer? Yet, had I met you by chance, I should have said that you were of our blood. That is so, Lord, I am of your blood. Cast your mind back and think if you can remember a certain daughter whom you loved many years ago, but who through the workings of your foes was chosen to be a bride to the snake? And she paused. Speak on, said Nam in a low voice. Perchance you can recall, Lord, that moved to it by love and pity on the night of the sacrifice, you helped that daughter to escape the fangs of the snake. I remember something of it, he replied cautiously. But tidings were brought to me that this woman of whom you speak was overtaken by the vengeance of the god and died on her journey. That is not so, Lord. I am your daughter, and you are none other than my father. I knew you when I first saw your face, though you did not know me. Prove it, and beware how you lie, he said. Show me the secret sign and whisper the hidden word into my ear. Then glancing suspiciously behind her, Soa came to him and made some movements with her hands in the shadow of the table. Next, bending forward, she whispered a while into his ear. When she had finished, her father looked up and there were tears in his aged eyes. Welcome, daughter, he said. I thought that I was alone and that none of my issue lived anywhere upon the earth. Welcome. Your life is forfeit to the snake. But forgetting my vows, I will protect you. I even at the cost of my own. 
Then the two embraced each other with every sign of tenderness, a spectacle that would have struck anyone acquainted with their characters as both curious and interesting. Presently Nam left the chamber, and having dismissed the attendant priest and his great-niece Saga, who were waiting outside, he returned and prayed his daughter to explain the reason of her presence in the train of Akka. First, you shall swear an oath to me, my father,' said Soa. "'And if you swear it not, I will tell you no word of my story. "'You shall swear by the blood of Akka "'that you will do nothing against the life of that queen "'with whom I journeyed hither. "'For the others you may work your will upon them, "'but her you shall not harm.' "'Why should I swear this, daughter?' he asked. "'You shall swear it, because I, whom you love, love her.' And also because you shall gain the greater honor. Who am I that I should lift my hand against the god's daughter? I swear it by the blood of Akka. And if I break my oath, then may Jal deal with me as he once dealt with Akka. Then Soa went on freely, for she knew that this was a vow that could not be broken. Beginning at its commencement, she told him all the story of her life since forty years ago she had fled from among the people of the mist, passing on rapidly, however, to that part of it which had to do with the capture and rescue of Juana from the slave traders, and with the promise that she had made to Leonard as the price of his assistance. That promise, she was careful to explain, she had not intended to fulfill until she was forced to do so by Juana herself. Then she gave him a minute history of the object and details of their expedition, down to her final quarrel with Leonard and her mistress on the previous day. To say that the old priest was thunderstruck at these extraordinary revelations would be too little. He was overwhelmed, so overwhelmed that for a while he could scarcely speak. It is fortunate for this jade of a mistress of yours who dares to make a mockery of our goddess that she may steal her wealth, that I have sworn to save her from harm, daughter, he gasped at length, else she had died and swiftly. At least the others remain to me, and he sprang to his feet. Stay a while, father, said Soa, catching his cloak. What is your plan? My plan? To drag them to the temple and denounce them. What else is there to do? And thereby denounce yourself also who proclaim them gods. I think I have a better. Tell it then, daughter. It is this. Do you pass in before the gods this day? Speak humbly to the gods, praying them to change the face of the heavens that the sun may shine, telling them also that strange talk has come to your ears by the mouth of Saga and the other women, of words that have been spoken by the god Jal, which would seem to show that he is no god. But that of this you believe nothing as yet. Then say to them that if the face of the heavens remains gray on the morrow, you will know that this talk is true, and that they will be brought to the temple there to be judged and dealt with according to the finding of the people who have heard these things also. And what if the weather should change, daughter? It will not change for a while, but if that should chance we must make another plan. Just now, I swore to you that I would not harm her whom you love. And yet, daughter, if she is proved to be a false goddess in the face of all the multitude, how shall she escape harm? For then her end must be quick and terrible. She shall escape because she will not be there, father. You have seen the white man with her, not the deliverer, the other. Were that man dressed in the robes of Akka and sat on high on the head of the statue when the light is low, who should say that he was not Akka? Then you would give all the others to death, daughter? Nay, I would save the deliverer alive for a while at least. And wherefore? You are too subtle for me. For this reason, father. 
He loves her who is named Akka and trusts to marry her, to marry her fully according to the custom of his people. Therefore, I would that he should see her given to another. To another? To whom then? To Ulfan the king who also loves her. Now Nam held up his hands in perplexity, saying, O oh, my daughter, be plain, I pray of you, for I cannot understand your counsels. Were it not better to give to these people the red stones which they desire and send them secretly from the land, seeing that they had vanished into the earth again? For so it seems to me we should be rid of much shame and trouble. Listen, my father, and I will tell you. Were she whom I love to leave this land, I could see her face no more, and this madness has come upon me that I cannot live without the sight of her. Also, how can these people escape the dangers of the road? But four of them are alive, and even were they without our borders, they must journey for three months before they come to any place where white men live, passing through swamps and deserts and tribes of wild men. This they could hardly do with arms such as those whereby the deliverer slew the priests. And now their arms are gone, you alone know where, my father. The instruments of which you speak lie in the deep waters of the temple pool, daughter, for there I caused them to be cast. Their arms are gone, said Soa. They are alone, here they must live or die. Three of them I will give to death, and the fourth I would make the wife of the king, seeing that nothing better can be done for her. Let her be hidden a while, and then let Ulfan take her. As for the tale we shall tell of the matter to the ears of the people, doubtless time will show it. I say that Ulfan loves her, and will buy her with a great price, and the price which you must ask shall be that henceforth he obeys you in everything. The scheme is good, daughter. At the least, bearing my oath in mind, I have none better. Though were it not for my oath, either I should kill them all, or set them free. Yet, who can say that it shall succeed? It is in the hands of fate. Let it go as fate wills. And now follow me, that I may place you where you shall dwell in comfort. Then after we have eaten, I will speak with these gods whom you have let loose upon us. That morning passed heavily enough to the four wretched prisoners in the palace. For some hours they sat together in the throne room almost silent, for they were crushed by misfortune and fear. The toils were closing in on them, and they knew it, nor could they lift a finger to save themselves. Francisco knelt and prayed. Leonard and Juana sat hand in hand, listening to him, while Otter wandered to and fro like an unquiet spirit, cursing Soa, Saga, and all women in many languages, and with a resource and vigor that struck his hearers as unparalleled. At length he vanished through the curtains. To get drunk, probably, Leonard reflected. However, the dwarf sought not drink— but vengeance. A few minutes later, hearing screams in the courtyard, Leonard ran out to find himself witness to a curious scene. There on the ground, surrounded by a group of other women, her companions who were laughing at her discomfiture, lay the stately Saga, bride of the snake. Over her stood her lord and master, the god Jal, his left hand twisted in her long hair, while with his right, in which he grasped a leather thong, despite her screams and entreaties, he administered to her one of the soundest, and, be it added, best-deserved thrashings that ever fell to the lot of erring woman. "'What are you doing?' said Leonard. "'I am teaching this wife of mine that it is not well to drug a god, Bas," gasped Otter, then added with a final and most ferocious cut, "'There!' Get you gone, witch, and let me see your ugly face no more. The woman rose and went, cursing and weeping, while the dwarf followed Leonard back to the throne room. You have done it now, Otter, said Leonard, 
Well, it does not much matter. I fancy she is gone for good anyway. Yes, boss, she has gone and she has gone sore, replied Otter with a faint grin. At that moment, a messenger arrived, announcing that Nam was without, waiting for an audience. Let him be admitted, said Juana with a sigh, and seated herself on one of the thrones, Otter clambering into the other. They had scarcely taken their places when the curtains were thrown back, and the ancient priest entered, attended by about a score of his fellows. He bowed himself humbly before Juana and the dwarf, and then spoke. O ye gods, he said, I come in the name of the people of the mist to take counsel with you. Why is it we do not know? But things have gone amiss in the land. The sun does not shine as in past years before you came to bless us, neither does the grain spring. Therefore your people are threatened with famine, and they pray that you may comfort them out of the store of your wisdom. And if we have no comfort to give, Nam? Then, Queen, the people ask that you will be pleased to meet them tomorrow in the temple at moonrise, when the night is one hour old, that they may talk to you there through the mouth of me, your servant. And if we weary of your temple and will not come, Nam? asked Juana. Then this is the command of the people, O Aka, that we bring you thither, and it is a command. That may not be disobeyed, answered the high priest slowly. Beware, Nam, replied Juana. Strange things happen here that call for vengeance. Our servants pass away like shadows, and in their place we find such knives as you carry. And she pointed to the priest's knives. We will come tomorrow at the rising of the moon. But again I say to you, beware. For now our mercy is but as a frayed cord, and it were well for you all that the cord should not break. Ye know best whether your servants have wandered, O Aka, said the priest, stretching out his hands in deprecation, and speaking in a tone of which the humility did not veil the insolence. For true gods such as ye are can guard their servants. We thank you for your words, O ye gods, and we pray you to be merciful to us. For the threats of the true gods are very terrible. And now one little word I will ask justice of you gods. She who was given to be bride of the snake, my niece who is named Saga, has been cruelly beaten by some evildoer here in the palace, as I know. For but now I met her bruised and weeping. I ask of you, then, that ye search out this evildoer and punish him with death or stripes. Farewell, O ye high gods. Leonard looked at the priest as he bowed humbly before the thrones, and a desire to take Otter's advice and kill him entered his heart, for he knew that he had come to drag them to their trial, and perhaps to doom. He still had his revolver, and it would have been easy to shoot him, for Nam's broad breast was a target that few could miss. And yet, what could it help them to shed his blood? There were many to fill his place if he died, and violence would certainly be answered with violence. No, he would let him be, and they must bide their fate. All right, actually, maybe that wasn't the roller coaster descent. Maybe this was just the final ratcheting up. As you can see, all around you can go, oh, it's happening and I can't get off. Because that conversation between Nam and Soa was the thing where you just go, oh, no, the two most evil people in the world are now getting together. And I thought it was kind of interesting one, the revelations we receive about Nam's internal view of these gods, that he's really trying to figure out, are they gods or not? And when he and Soa were reunited, it was actually touching for a minute until they start to reveal who they are again. Actually, she's a worthy daughter to this evil old priest. And Soa has got such a refined view of how to do things, mostly, I guess, because she's been working around the plan of how does she keep Juana for herself, which is 
really weird. Okay. I guess Juana's the daughter she never had, but still, come on. Because at one point when Nam is saying, well, what if we just gave him some of those red stones and let him go, man? This is just so much trouble. Wouldn't everybody be happy then? You know, that would have been a great answer. Lower somebody down, have them get the stones. I guess there's somewhere where you could get them. And out the door. But no, so has got to be so practical. She is not going to let Juana go out there and die. She'll keep her a prisoner as someone's bride who she doesn't want to be. So much better. And again, so what we see is selfishness. And that's been Soa's problem all along, since we've known her. Although, as she pointed out earlier to Otter and everybody, gee, guess what? If it wasn't for me, you guys would never have met. Juana, who knows what would have happened to you? You would not be very happy now as whoever's slave, etc. So even her own selfishness was used for some good. Until they went for the redstones. So the stage is set once again for a conflict, a climax, a meeting of forces. When we see what happens when everybody's taken to the moonlight um, temple meeting and Juan is missing and it's just getting worse and worse. I didn't think it could get worse, as I've said before, but it just keeps getting worse in a delightful way. All right. In other podcast news, I wanted to mention that Scott and I talked about The Source by James Michener over at A Good Story is Hard to Find. By the time you hear this, that will probably be ready also. It is a really long book, but it is such a good book. And if you're at all interested, I would love to encourage you to read it because essentially it is like a series of short stories, well, long short stories, perhaps novellas all put together with a framework of an archaeological dig. And then the stories of all the things they find, of the people who left them there or owned them, are told throughout this book. So you can take it in stages and it really gives you a wonderful feel for the history of one place, the history of a family line, and above all, which is Michener's point, the history of Israel, the Jewish people, and necessarily Judaism. It is really great. And naturally, with the fact that I'm going to be going next spring to the Holy Land, that brings up just one more tie-in for me. I just really feel like I have that literary sense of appreciation. Of course, the point of going somewhere is it's never like you imagine. Hopefully it's better. But it's always different, one way or the other. And that, I guess, is the contrast to see. That's what you do when you go on pilgrimage. You hit the road and see how it changes you. Sorry, I diverged there for a minute. But one other bit of podcast news is I every so often will check back with History According to Bob to see what is going on. He's always got four or five series going. And lately they've all been about things I don't care about or in so much depth. But he started one relatively recently on the Mexican War or the American-Mexican War, or the Mexican-American War, whatever you want to call it. As somebody who lives in Texas, I'm interested in that. I wouldn't have been otherwise, possibly. But he did point out how many things hinge on it. So many of the generals and military people who wound up being influential in the Civil War, got a lot of their training there, including, as I happen to know, since my husband just read a book about it recently, General Grant. Well, President Grant, who wasn't General Grant by the time of the war. Anyway, you get the point. So I'm interested, and I thought I'd mention it in case you are. Now, in regular news around the house, summertime has hit. Like I said, we're in Texas. It's getting hot. And because you could never get enough of that hot weather. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I, I hate hot weather. But anyway, because you could never get enough of that hot weather... And because I haven't seen my mother in a few years, Tom and I are going to take a road trip to Florida next week. We are going to spend two days driving, which I love because so much comes up when you're just driving and talking and listening to music and the occasional audiobook or podcast. You have conversations that you would never normally have the time to let develop sometimes. Some more of that thing about being on the road 
the journey changes you some. And I really love it, as I've mentioned before, I know. So we're going to go to visit my mom, who's about an hour or so south of Orlando, maybe. And then after we visited her and my sister, of course, and brother-in-law for a few days, we're going to go up to St. Augustine and spend a day there and stay at a little adorable, according to the website, bed and breakfast, and celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary which was in May, but we deferred the celebration until we could go somewhere like this. So that will be fun. And then on the way back, we really were trying to figure out how we could go through Muscle Shoals, which if anybody listens to Good Stories Hard to Find, well, and I think I've told you here how much I love that documentary about Muscle Shoals, but we couldn't swing it. It was just too far out of the way for us to be able to make it back in time to get back to work. So now we're going to have to plan another trip going out there and maybe visiting Civil War battlefields or something. I don't know. Anyway, that's in the works. Muscle Shoals is a definite thing, though. You know, we've got our priorities. (laughs) Well, I don't know what your priorities are or what your travel plans are or even what your weather's like, but I hope wherever you are, it's wonderful and you're able to enjoy a little bit of summer relaxation, hitting the road, seeing where the journey changes you, even if it's maybe just the journey to the swimming pool and back. One thing I do know is I really appreciate you dropping by. I wouldn't be reading this out loud. I say that every time, but it's really true. I wouldn't be reading this out loud if you wouldn't listen. So I appreciate it because I enjoy it so much. Have a great week, everyone. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.